If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 and 12 this morning. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 27, and then we're going to go into Mark chapter 12, verse 12. Now before we read it, I'll just give a a bit of a, uh, maybe an orienting statement. We're entering, remember we've entered into Jerusalem and we know what's going to happen. Jesus has clearly predicted what's going to happen in Jerusalem and we've finally gotten there. And we saw last week there was the, the, the judgment in the temple well, this section, this, this entire section that's going to go for, for the next couple chapters, it's going, to, it's going to bring about a clear conflict between Jesus and the, the opposers or, or the Jewish leadership. The leading idea of this whole section that, that's going to be clear this morning, but, but in the coming weeks, the, the leading idea of the whole section is that the leaders of the Jewish people have rejected the will of God. That's, that's going to come out um, week after week as we see this opposition to Jesus. And so that, that's kind of, a, that's, that's our framing thought. We're going to see Jesus as the messenger and these opponents as, as rejecting the messenger and the will of God to their own peril. So, that, so that's where we'll, we'll go. So let's, let's begin in, in Mark 11, verse 27. I'm going to start reading there and then I'm going to go through verse 12 of chapter 12. So follow along. I'm going to begin in Mark eleven twenty-seven. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, Well, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. What's the baptism of John? Was it from heaven, or was it from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say... Why did you not believe him? But if we say for man, they're afraid of the people, for they, held, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 1 of chapter 12, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants. And he went, went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, that's the servant, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. But he still had one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him, the beloved son, to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. This is Jesus talking again. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he will destroy the tenants, and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, these two sections, they, they work together, so, so it's, it's not a problem that, that we're, we're combining these two passages. And so it breaks down really easily in the two sections 
in the two passages. So first, I see the authority of the beloved son in verses 27 through 33, so the end of chapter 11. And then the next section, verses 1 through 12, is, is the rejection of the beloved son. And so it's clear as we're reading this that the beloved son, in this case, in the parable, but, but in this story, is Jesus. And so we'll, we'll see that as it's worked out. So first, let's look at verse 27, the authority of the beloved son. Now, we continue with last week's passage. So it picks up right where left, last week left off, and there's this back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem. So every day he goes into Jerusalem with his disciples. He retreats to Bethany. The next day he goes. And so that's what happened with the fig tree. That's what's happening now. He's on his way to Jerusalem. So verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem. Like times past, they go to Jerusalem, and they don't stop in Jerusalem. They make their way to a specific spot in Jerusalem, namely the temple. So that, that's his practice. So he makes his way into the temple. And so it's interesting to note, remember last time he was in the temple, what happened last time he was in the temple? What did he do? He, he made a ruckus, didn't he? He overturned tables and he, he kicked people out. And so now, the, the, the following day, he goes again to the temple. And the fact that, that Jesus is walking around freely, you notice that he's, he's just there in the temple again. And the fact that he's walking around freely in the temple courts is itself evidence of his authority. No one's going to stop him. Right? He's just created this, this ruckus, this havoc, and the next day he, he comes back. He's not afraid of retribution. He's not afraid of anyone saying, well, why'd you do what you did? So he's back, talking, walking, teaching in the temple the very next day. He has no reservations of headed right back to the temple, which I think shows the authority of, of this one. Then verse 27 continues, as he was walking, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him. And so notice these, these three people. So this isn't just one group. This is, this is kind of the, the collective Jewish leadership who all, maybe representatives from each party, or maybe they all come and they, they want to talk to him. Now notice it's, it's the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now if you remember, maybe you don't, I didn't remember, but all the way back in 831, Mark 831, you can write it down, but in 831, which was the, the first of the, the, the death predictions that Jesus made back in Mark 8, Mark says that Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, but specifically Jesus said that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So that's kind of a foreshadowing. So now he's in the temple and we see these three people again coming to him. We should think, wait a minute, these are the ones to whom Jesus, through whom, by whose hands, Jesus is going to suffer. And so right off the back, we know what's coming. As we're reading Jesus, these are his opponents, and we know they're going to win in the end. Or they're they're going to get Jesus. And so he, he's approached by them. And, and this is the mark of, of these six controversy stories that are, that are going to follow. This is the first one. The showdown is being set up. So they come to him there in verse 28, and they ask him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to do what you did? These things obviously re- refers to what, what he'd just done. Remember, he'd overturn tables, he'd kick people out, and he'd begin teaching. So they want to know, what, why, why did you do that? You're not allowed, don't you know, you're not allowed to do that without authority. So, so what authority did you do that by? Whose authority? So these, these Jewish officials, they want to know what right Jesus has in acting the way he's been acting. And implicit in their question is the fact that Jesus is acting and teaching as one with authority. Right? That's implied. He's acting like he has authority, but they want to know who gave you that authority. So it's clear Jesus is acting as one in authority, but, but they, that doesn't go over well with him. So they ask, what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? And so Jesus, in responding, which, which is a common rabbinic form of teaching, so he answers a question with a question. So you see there in verse 29, I'll ask you one question. If you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. It's kind of a turn of the tables. And so his question, 
was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Tell me. That, that's your question. Now, now Jesus is not asking a, a trick question. I think this is a legitimate question. Tell me, leaders, tell me about John. You know John, John the Baptist, the one who's no longer with us? Tell me about him. Was, was he from God or was he from men? And by asking this counter question, I think Jesus is, is showing them intentionally that their decision about John will determine what they think about Jesus. I, th- I think that's his point. Answer that question, then you'll know the answer to, my que- to your question you asked me. I think that's his point. He, he stakes his own authority entirely on that of John the Baptist. He, he's connecting himself to John, who's gone before him. And so he asked them this question, knowing that these leaders were very much aware of the connection between John and Jesus, the one who prepared the way and the one who came after. And he knows that if they accept the divine authority behind John's ministry, then they should accept the divine authority behind Jesus as well. And Jesus only gives them two answers. Right? This man, John, you all know him. Was he sent by God or man? There's only, there's only two options. And the same is true with Jesus. And so as these men, as they're asking, well, well who gave you authority? They're, they're assuming, I would say their assumption is no one. Their assumption is he's not going to be able to answer that question. No one gave him authority. He doesn't have a right to act the way he is. I mean, they're not aware. They, they know the temple authority. They are, in fact, part of the temple authority. So they know no human authority has, given, given, no human authority has been given to Jesus so they want to know, assuming that there is no source. And so Jesus turns the table and shows them that there actually is another source of authority. And that source is, is the only true source of authority. Like John, Jesus' authority is grounded in a commission from God. And so he puts that question to them, and they, they immediately catch the dilemma they're in. They're, they're on the horns of a predicament. They're caught. Their intention to trap Jesus and to embarrass him, to make him say, well, actually, I don't have any authority. I'm sorry. You're right. I'm, you're You're right. It's your temple, I'll leave. Instead of that being the result, Jesus now has, has turned it into an occasion for their own embarrassment. Here's an easy question, guys. Was John from God or man? They, they retreat. Well, 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 neither option is a good option. Uh, we, we can't do this. If we say from God, then, then we're guilty of, of unbelief. If we say man, well, then, then we're guilty of, of, of the, the ear of this crowd who thinks that he was from man. So, so we better not answer this one, guys. And so these men take the cowardly way out. We don't know. We don't know. To which Jesus in verse 33, well, neither will I tell you but by what authority I do these things. Now in one sense, Jesus has already answered their question, hasn't he? He's already answered their question by connecting himself to John, saying, well, whatever you decide about John is true of me. But in another sense, his verbal refusal to answer their question is another indictment against them. And so I think his response, his reply to them, I'm not telling you the answer. It's not worth my breath because... If you're unable to discern the divine commission behind this this John the Baptist, if you're unable to discern that that God sent him, that that was a supernatural ministry, then I'm not going to waste my breath and tell you that that I have been sent by the same supernatural commission. Because you're not going to believe it. You don't believe John, you're not going to believe me. So so why? I'm not going to give you the answer you're seeking. Although he has given them the answer they're seeking. They are, in fact, guilty of unbelief on the wrong side of revelation, but refusing to believe God's messengers. And so this interaction here in the temple leads to a series of conflicts between Jesus and those leaders. And so the conflict, as is evident here in this interaction, is centered around the divine mission of Jesus. These, these leaders are refusing to believe Jesus. They're refusing to believe that he is who he says he was, that he'd been sent by God, which leads then to the parable of chapter 12. So, so let's look next at the rejection 
of the beloved son. There, verses 1 through 12. So as we turn to this parable, it's a, a judgment parable. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's a harsh parable. A judgment is issued by Jesus through this parable. Let me, let me kind of, before we look at, at these verses, let me make two points. First, this is one of the few parables that is clearly, to be, that is clearly intended to be understood allegorically. So, so this is to be understood allegorically, which is simply to say that Jesus tells this parable with characters in the story having real-life connections. Okay, so we're supposed to hear this and connect the stories, the characters from the parable to characters in real life. Okay, that's allegorical. So this means this has a real-life representation. Now, now, that's not always the case with the parables of Jesus. Right? If you read some of the church fathers, they tended to view every parable, every story, every miracle allegorically. There's an allegorical meaning. So if you read about Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, calming the storm, you'll read authors who say, well, the boat clearly represents the church, and, and the wind was Satan, and the waves are something else, and the disciples are this, and this word is this, and they find meaning in every little aspect. That's not the case most of the time. We, we don't need, we, didn't, we shouldn't feel a burden to find allegorical meaning in every parable. Most of the time, it's not the case. We, should feel, we shouldn't feel the need to perfectly identify what means what. But in this parable, we should. Because the parable itself, the passage itself, tells us that we should understand it allegorically. I and mean, that's helpful. One author says the key is at the door. So it's easy to understand. You don't have to guess. It, it tells us explicitly, well, first the context tells us, because we're in the midst of this confrontation with the religious leaders. But most importantly there, if you look down at verse 12, the very end of the passage, the, the, the leaders are seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So that tells us this parable is against them. They perceived rightly. Jesus told this parable it was against them, and they got it. And so as we look, go into this parable, we know that it's being told against the religious leaders. So, so the identity of, of the, the people in here, or part of some of the people are going to be the religious leaders, and that'll, that'll be clear as we, as we move through. But then second, the second thing to notice about this parable is that it has a clear Old Testament background. So I want you to turn to Isaiah 5. We're going to turn here and we're going to look at these, these first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5. So you can hold your place in Mark, but in, in Isaiah chapter 5, this is, I think, the Old Testament background. So when Jesus is telling this parable to the religious leaders, to the Jewish leaders, I think he has this exact story in mind. So I'm going to read the first seven verses because I want to get you the connection I want you to, to get it, to hear it yourself. And I don't think Jesus' hearers would have missed this connection. So here, here's Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah writes, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. 
I will make a waste, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So that's, that's Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So, so hopefully you're, you're hearing the connections. Right? The, the imagery is similar. Certainly you see the similarities between these two. They're not identical. Jesus adds a few details in his retelling of the story, but there are certainly similarities. And the main point, I would argue, of, of the Isaiah passage and in our passage, our parable, is the same. And that's the, that the Israelites, you see there in, verse, in Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard represents, there in verse 7, the vineyard represents Israel and Judah. And so he tells us it represents them, and they have not produced fruit. They have not done their part. They have yielded wild grapes, which, do you see the difference? I, I was looking for grapes, but I found wild grapes. This, this is, they're not producing what they're supposed to produce. They're, they're, they're fruitless. Their useless fruit is being produced. Verse 7, he looked for justice and found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and he found cries for help. And so the Lord in Isaiah 5, he's going to remove the protection. He's, he's going to break down the walls. He's going to make it a waste. He's not going to water it. He's going to let it go. And so Jesus, telling the parable to explain the current situation between him and the Jewish religious leaders, tells a story that would have jogged the memory of every Jewish leader about the time in Israel's history where there's tension between them and the Lord. So if I'm an Israelite, listening to Jesus, and I remember that, I think, yeah, I remember that time. And he, he broke down the walls, and the Assyrians came and invaded and took us. That's right. That was a bad time for us. And so as Jesus uses this, he retells this time of the tension between God and Israel, but he changes one thing. In Isaiah's parable, it concerns the unfaithfulness of the nation at large, right? It's the vineyard itself that's the focus. But here, Jesus, he shifts it a little bit. Because his parable introduced the caretakers of the vineyard, the tenants, those responsible for keeping the vineyard. And those who are leaders that Jesus is in conflict with are the keepers of the vineyard that he's telling the story about. And so he's, he's, he's aiming this at the religious leaders, to those that are there confronting him. So let's look, let's look at the parable. Let's look at how Jesus tells it. Verses 1 and 2, you see it sets, up, it sets up the parable. A man planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. All, all those settings are, are the same as Isaiah 5. That, that kind of creates a scene and jogs the memory and says, oh yeah, I remember that. So here, this parable, Jesus says, it sets a scene. This, this would have been a common lease agreement. So vineyard leasing was, was common back then. There would have been lots of large estates. So there wasn't a lot of houses all gathered together, lots of land, and you'd have these landowners who'd have this land, and they'd, they'd lease it out. They'd rent it to tenants to take care and to produce, and, and their rent, part of the agreement would be, part of the rent, part of your, your paying me for letting you use this land and live on this land is you just give me a portion of the produce. You just, you, that's your rent. You give me some of what you get from my land. That, that's simple as that. That's the agreement. And so verse 2 tells us when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Normal procedure, harvest time, contract time, all right, time to pay up. So he sends a servant to go get it. 
Now here's where Jesus' parable shifts course. Remember in Isaiah, the vineyard produced, right? It just didn't produce what it was supposed to. It was unfruitful in the sense it didn't produce what was intended to produce. The grapes were useless. But notice here in, in Jesus' telling of the parable, the story shifts. It's not that the tenants produce bad fruit and give bad fruit to the servant of the landowner. Instead, look at verse 3. He comes to them asking for produce, and they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. So these tenants, right, they're not being asked to give anything that they shouldn't be expecting to give. And they take this servant, this representative from the landowner, and they beat him, and they send him away without the rent. These are wicked tenants we see here from the beginning. They refuse to pay. Not only that, not only do they just say, go away, they beat this man and send him back. But it doesn't stop there. Look there at verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. So we get round two, different servant, same result. The tenants refused to listen to the servant of their landowner, and they continued to abuse the servant. And then a a shift, a turn, a shocking turn, the wickedness climaxes with the third servant. You see there in verse 5, And he sent another, number three, and him they killed. So this reaches a climax. They're not just beating the servants, sending them back empty-handed. This time they're not sending them back at all. They kill them. These wicked tenants, they'll they'll stop at nothing. And remember, these these servants, they're they're from the landowner. The the tenants, they owe their bounty, their sustenance to the landowner. And these, these are representatives of the landowner. Instead of giving back what he's due, they refuse, and they beat, and they kill his servants. And verse 5 continues, and so with many others. It's not like three, and after number three, it stops. There were many others. It doesn't say how many, but there are many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. However the tenants felt that day. Oh, here comes another one. What do you want to do today? Let's just, let's just beat him and send it back. No, let's kill him today. Many others, this cycle going on and on. Servant after servant after servant, which forces the listeners, as Jesus is telling this story, but also us as readers, to ask, how wicked can these tenants be? I mean, how wicked can they get? But also, we ask ourselves, how foolish can this landowner be? Right? Isn't isn't that kind of, what a foolish landowner. Why would he send servant after servant after servant? Okay, maybe, maybe the beatings you'll take, but when one doesn't come back, when one's killed, why would you send another? What a foolish landowner. And it's these two questions, as they, they together, as we consider them, that I think form a point of application for us. And because, as we're reading this, these servants, the treatment of the servants, as, as we back up and, and understand the context, they represent right, the ill treatment of the prophets. I mean, that, that, that's how everyone has understood these servant after servant after servant being sent and not listen to. And so this parable, this allegory, it's an illustration of God's dealings with Israel. It's an illustration of God's dealing. And so when we ask the question, how wicked can these tenants get? We recognize that these tenants are the ones who have rejected prophet after prophet after prophet. And, and we see that validated throughout the Old Testament. Stephen's speech is, is another place you can go. The most recent being John the Baptist, who was rejected and killed. But that second question, here, here's where I want us to, to, to think. How foolish can this landowner get? That, that, gets, that question gets to the heart of the character of God, doesn't it? 
Because we understand that this, this, this landowner is, is to be understood as God sending prophet after prophet, it changes how we think about that question. It's not that the landowner is foolish. That's not it. Rather, the landowner is patient. What a patient landowner. I mean, servant after servant who's persecuted, who's beat, who's rejected, continue, the landowner continues to send, knowing what's going to happen. What a patient landowner. Yet he sent more and more, knowing what was going to happen. And so I think an application is simply, as we look at this parable, it becomes clear as, as God's dealing with Israel, take front and center, we have to be careful not to distance ourselves so, so it's easy for us to say, well, that's about Israel, and they rejected the prophets, and so that's, that's disconnected from me. We, we have to be careful not to do that, because when we see the patience of God on display, like we do in this passage, we ought to, to be warned and encouraged by it. We ought to be warned because the fact that these tenants, after rejecting prophet after prophet after prophet, at the end of the story, the patience ran out, didn't it? Took my son, that's it. So so it is patience. So so as he's sending and sending and sending, there there is his patience, but we ought to be warned because the patience did run out. It didn't run indefinitely. It had an end point. And so we ought to heed that warning. Even as followers of Christ, we ought not to take for granted the patience of God. Now, I don't mean in the sense that we should should fear eternal judgment and condemnation as believers, right? That's not to be feared by the follower of Christ, but we ought to receive his servants. So as Christians, we ought to heed the teaching and teachings of the servants, the, the messengers of the Lord. And I don't think God sends us prophets or, or apostles now, but I do think that God continues to speak through his prophets and apostles through his written word. And so as we're reading his scriptures, right, we are hearing the word of the Lord from his servants who have written, who have, who have faithfully written his word. And so we ought to be warned not to be like the wicked tenants, to refuse to hear the Lord's servants as they speak. And so take that with you as you sit down and, and read the scriptures. If you hear a warning, if you hear a, a command, don't reject it. Don't refuse to hear. But we ought also to be encouraged by the patience of God because God is patient, right? That ought to encourage you. God is patient. It should encourage you if you're not Christ- non-Christian. It should encourage you if you're a Christian. If you're non-Christian, God has given you another day. Today is another day for you to turn to him. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, but you're here today. And so you ought to see this as, as the kindness and patience of a loving God, and you ought to re- return to him. You ought to turn and trust in Christ as long as it is today because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. But as a Christian, God is patient. Isn't that good news? In the midst of humanity's refusal to receive God's love, he persisted and persisted and persisted. One representative after another of God's was abused and slain. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Right? That's the natural human response to to how we've responded to God. But thankfully, God is patient. He's not like us. He's not like Martin Luther. Instead of turning his back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant, patiently sending servant after servant. And he continues to be patient to this day. 
Some see this parable and they say, well, that's foolish. What a foolish landowner. This is nothing but an unbelievably foolish man. But what some criticize as absurd and unrealistic is in reality the inconceivable amazing grace of God. It's not foolish. It's patience. It's amazing grace that's shown to rebellious people by a loving landowner. Well, the the parable picks back up. Look there in verse 6. In verse 6, we find one more attempt to be made by the landowner. He sent all his servants, and as one commentator puts it, the landowner has one more card up his sleeve. He's got one more thing to try. Verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, don't know how many servants it took, but finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Surely, there's a difference between my son and my servants. Surely, he'll meet a different fate. So the landowner decides to send his beloved son. And so the son sent, he's a different person, but he's on an identical mission. Going to to get what the landowner is owed. In verse 7, instead of respecting the son, those tenants, they see the son coming. They say to one one another, this is the heir. It's not a servant anymore. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And then once he's gone, the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Just like that, the son is gone, discarded like one of the mere servants. Now, now one question I had, maybe you're wondering, is how do these tenants expect to receive the inheritance? Now, well, wait a minute, that, that's for the family, that's for the son. Why, why, why do you think that you can get it? Well, a number of things, issue, or solutions are put forward. I think the most likely is they probably assume the landowner is dead. I mean, after all these servants, after all, all that he's done, why hadn't he come? Why did he send the son? Now, he must be dead. And they think, if he's gone, and then we kill the son, well, we've been, we've been on this land for at least five years, ten years, and there are Jewish legal laws that say, well, if you've leased it for that long, there's no one left, and you get it. So these tenants are, are wicked and foolish. I, so, so that's probably what happened on how they assumed to get the inheritance. But again, if we, if we get too focused on the details, I think we miss the point. The point is that these tenants are wicked, and they're foolish, and these, these actions, they're absurd. They're wrong. Not only did they kill the beloved son, but also afterwards they threw his body outside and left him unburied, which would have been an incredible offense. And so Jesus concludes the parable with a question to his listeners in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do now? What's he going to do now? The answer is clear, isn't it? Realizing that the landowner isn't dead, it's clear what his response would be. Servant after servant, and now his beloved son, surely the last straw has been reached. Well, Jesus doesn't even give him a chance to answer. You see, he asks the questions, and he tells them, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's what's going to happen. Jesus makes clear that the wicked tenants will be destroyed and that the vineyard will be given to others who will respect the owner's property. He's not going to mess with them anymore. He's going to take it from them, destroy them, and give the vineyard to others. This is is a clear indictment against these Jewish leaders. They have rejected God's servants. And soon, whether they know it or not, they are going to kill the beloved son. And that's what they're going to do. And so Jesus closes the section in verse 10 from a quotation from Psalm 118. And and earlier, when when Mark was recording the entrance of Jesus and the, the Hosanna the hallelujahs, that, that was a quote from Psalm 118. So now he goes back to, to quote this messianic psalm again. In verse 22 and 23 of Psalm 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
There's this great reversal, this change. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So notice Jesus, before he quotes the scripture, he says, have you not read this scripture as a justification about what's going to happen? He says, don't you know your Bible, Jewish leaders? Then he quotes that messianic psalm. And so these leaders would have known this is a messianic psalm, and and the stone would have been the Messiah. They would have understood that, and they're they're being told, you're going to kill the promised one. There'd be a great reversal because this rejected stone then becomes the cornerstone. So in quoting this, this psalm, Psalm 19, Jesus is teaching, foreshadowing the, the coming change. There's a change happening, a shift that, that we saw last week. The ending of the temple, the, the coming of Jesus and the establishment of, of his kingdom was a transformation or a fulfillment of Judaism as it was. There's something happening. Jesus had come to, to transform or fulfill what was before. He had come to build something new. There's going to be a new temple. No need for the old one. A new beginning. And this new thing was going to be built on the rejected stone. It was Jesus. He was going to be the cornerstone. The centerpiece of the new building. The centerpiece of the new people. The new temple. And this new temple is going to be built upon Jesus. This is the great reversal. The rejected stone then becomes the cornerstone. And it's the Lord who does this. Which brings the conversation all the way back around to the beginning. Jesus is the beloved Son. He's the one sent by the Lord. The one to be heard and the one to be listened to. The one whose authority ought to be recognized by those who want to hear from God. And so in quoting Psalm 118, Jesus is telling these opponents, they're going to kill the beloved Son... And that by killing the beloved son, they're going to fulfill God's plan to build a new people. They're going to be destroyed. They're no longer to be over the vineyard. They're going to lose their privileged place. They've killed too many servants. And notice in verse 12, they seek to arrest him then and there. So so they get this. They get that this is about them. And they, they they want to arrest Jesus. But they're afraid of the people. They perceived that he had told it against them. In other words, if they arrested Jesus right then and there, they would only confirm what Jesus had just said they are going to do. So they go away to, to, to plan and, and scheme how they might get him. So they leave Jesus and go away. Well, there are a couple more applications as, as we reach the end that I, th- I think we can take from this. First, what was just mentioned, the place of Jesus, the place of Christ in the church, the place of Jesus, or the role of Jesus as the cornerstone As we saw last week, Jesus' coming marks the beginning of the end of the old system. So so temple worship is is being done away with. It's not about the temple anymore. It's not not even about going to Jerusalem. Jesus is changing things. It's going to be a new temple that's built on him. It's a temple of people, not of bricks. And the foundation of this new temple is Jesus. He's the principal stone. He's the foundation piece. Without him, there's no building. It's all about him. As Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 20, when he talks about there's this new man, so Gentile and Jew, that the division, it's obliterated by the new man that's been, been reconciled in Jesus. There's one man now, not Jew and Gentile, there's one man, that man is Jesus, who's the foundation, the cornerstone. There's a unified people who make up the one temple. built on the found, It's the foundation built on Christ, the foundation is built upon by the apostles and the prophets. And this whole structure is being joined together into a holy temple to the Lord, but it's grounded on Jesus. 
And so it should go without saying where Jesus ceases to be the main idea, the central theme, the bread and butter of a, of a corporate gathering of a church. The church ceases to be a church. There's no church without Jesus. Right? And so we ought to know the place of Jesus in the church. He, he, he reconstitutes the people of God, not around ethnicity, but around Jesus. It's all about him. It should affect how we think about other religions. Just, just one other application. There's no peace from God apart from Jesus. I don't care if you have sincere faith. When Jesus is not the object of your sincere faith, there's no peace for God, with God. There's no true religion apart from Jesus. There's an exclusivity to Christianity that we, we cannot shy away from because there's only one true religion that's built on Jesus. There's not many ways to one Father. There's one way to the one Father. Another application, the duty of Christian leadership. Although there's a new temple, the parable doesn't teach there's a new vineyard or that the vineyard is no longer functioning. There, there's new leaders put over. So the parable teaches the owner has given the vineyard over to others. I think the most natural way to understand that the others is to understand them as the leaders of the church, from the apostles and those after and, and on and on and on, this line of authority, not, not in terms of a, a pope, but just the authority of, of local leaders that God has given to the church. He's appointed leaders, tenors, tenants to care for his vineyard. And that responsibility ought not be taken lightly. I must, we must avoid the error of the wicked tenants in pursuing selfish gain at the cost of keeping the vineyard. We have a responsibility to ensure that the vineyard is producing. And so as church leaders, we ought to take our responsibility seriously. Then lastly, the, the last application, the authority and the rejection of the beloved son. These, these two tension, these two points that seem to be in tension. Although Jesus was the beloved son, right, of all people, Jesus was the one to be heard and accepted. He was the one from the Father, the one with authority. It's been attested throughout all of Mark's gospel. This is my beloved son. This is him. So the one who deserved to be heard, received, accepted was not. Right? He was not accepted. Rather, he was rejected. And so his authority and his rejection, this is the tension that speaks to the character of, of Christ. Right? He knew his authority. He knew that he demanded allegiance and obedience, yet he was rejected. And he went through to the cross, suffering, being humbled, humiliated. And that tension between his authority and his rejection points to the good news of the gospel, and it specifically points us to the gospel because we are the wicked tenants. That's not just a a Jewish leader thing. That's a human thing, right? We are the wicked tenants. We're the ones who colluded against our Lord, against our landlord, our landowner, And though he had every right to destroy us, right, instead of destroying, he sent his beloved son, knowing the fate of that beloved son. And he sent that son while we were still sinners, while we were still rebellious tenants. And this is the good news of the gospel. The, The beloved son was rejected. He was rejected and he was killed. And because of that, because of what he did, remember what the tenants thought they were going to get by killing the son? Now, what did they want? They wanted the inheritance. The death of the son would bring about the inheritance. Well, the gospel tells us that because he was killed, we do get the inheritance. We do get it. But it's not because we killed the son. It's because God has graciously desired to use the death of the son to give the inheritance to those who have been reconciled to him. It's not because we deserve it. It's because God is gracious.